consider yourself ambitious and what are you ambitious for or to get done? A hundred percent. That has changed over time. When I started my company, my goal was to be successful and not fail. My goal was to just have four or five employees and do a good job for the couple of clients that we had and go home and make dinner and work out every day. <laughs> the ambitions change over time. And when I became a mom, my ambitions changed. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Sabrina Horn, a seasoned CEO, C-suite advisor, communications expert, and author. She talks about the importance of taking charge of your life and your career and owning your journey. Her book, Make It, Don't Fake It, talks about her perspective on remaining aligned to your values and living authentically. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Sabrina, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It's so great to have you on. Thank you, Sam. It's so great to be doing this with you today and talking to your amazing audience. I would love to start out with your career. Right now, you're the CEO of Horn Strategy, a consulting firm that you founded. And I think you really have such an interesting portfolio career, if I can call it that. Not only do you run your own company, you're a professor, you're a best-selling author, you really have done a lot. And I would love for you to just take us through your work today, but tell us how it evolved and how you got to this place. That's a great place to start. The company I ran was a PR agency in the tech industry, which I started when I was 29. And I ran it for 24 years and sold it. And I think after that, I decided that rather than doing public relations for companies and putting companies on the map, I wanted to switch to really helping individuals like CEOs and founders, entrepreneurs, students as well, people who run teams and corporations, individuals who want to become leaders and help give them the tools to get over certain challenges that they have. It really switched to working more on an individual basis. So let's talk about the public relations firm that you founded. There were very few women running firms, particularly in Silicon Valley at the time. What were the major barriers you came up against when you were starting and how did you work through those? Back then in 1991, there was probably maybe a handful, a little bit more of, of female CEOs. And I have to tell you that being 29 years old makes you kind of fearless. And so I didn't really think about it. What have I got to lose? I'm just going to give it my best shot. And if I don't make it, then at least I know that I tried. I was, of course, keenly aware of the fact that I was a very young female CEO and I would say 98% of the executives I worked with were almost twice my age and they were all male. I felt like as long as I've done my homework and I'm really intelligent about the advice I'm giving them, there's no reason to be worried about my gender. And if they don't want to work with me because I'm a woman, then there's plenty of other fish in the sea to work with. So I really didn't let it get to me in the beginning. That said, there were boardroom situations where I thought, how am I going to navigate this? Everything I did, I did for the first time. And that was more intimidating to me than what do they think of me as a woman? Over time, I developed this resilience as a leader to not let stuff get to me 
Was there a time where you were in the boardroom talking to senior managers or the board and you were trying to convey a position that you felt was meeting some sort of resistance? And how did you work through that situation from either your conviction or the data that you were presenting, whether it was in the room or frankly afterwards? This is where being authentic and not being intimidated or backing down because you're feeling the pressure is is so important. This is where standing true to what you believe, you really have done your homework and you really have done your research and you know in your heart that the direction that they're going in is not going to help them. I would always say, look, you can do that. You can do whatever you want, but I'm here. You asked me to come here to give you my advice. So if you go down this path, here's what can happen. And if you go down this other path, here's what can happen here. And no path is without its obstacles ever. But you have to think about what's the lesser of two evils? What's going to cause the least amount of damage? And I'm here to just present this information to you and then just shut up. And the silence causes this sort of, hmm, this sort of gravity. Well, we need to think about that, right? That's how I would approach it. And at the time, so this was when, well before, I think some of the biggest companies from Silicon Valley had emerged yet or were really as powerful as they are today. What were companies struggling with when you started out? And what were the key things you were really trying to help them work through? A lot of those things are still true today. If you're a startup, you're trying to establish awareness and get your first couple of customers. You're trying to get funding. But if you're a bigger company, you're worried about your stock price, you're worried about reputation, about expanding into new markets. On some level, they're all the same problems, but just on a smaller or a larger scale. And in PR and communications, it was never just about putting out press releases. It was about helping them think through what those strategies might be. What move are you making today in anticipation of the move you're going to make tomorrow and the day after tomorrow so that it's strategic? It's a plan. It can't just be tactical. And I actually think that's one of the misunderstandings of good PR is never really about hype. It's always about the truth. The second thing I'll say there is that often it's the CEO who used us and worked with me as sort of like a confidant. What do you think about this situation? And knowing what's going on in the rest of the industry, like in this echo chamber of a company, you know about a lot of different viewpoints. And that was also kind of a point of value that we could add to say, if you take this path, then you need to consider these things. I think about all the different channels that are now available to us as a communicator existing back then, social media, obviously, but some others too. When you think about the ways a company can tell its story, convey its strategy, and even just interact with customers in all these channels, how much more complex is it? And how do you come back to the core of what the company should be saying and doing regardless of how many channels are out there. It is so much more complicated now. Every day, it seems like there's a new tool that you can use to measure your work or a new group that you need to belong to or a new channel. And it's different if you're an enterprise software B2B company versus a B2C consumer company, right? We could spend days talking about that. I think at the end of the day, it's really important to come back to who you are as a company that meaning your value proposition and how you differentiate from others out there. Not that you're better, just how you're different. Lastly, I would say so many companies always lead with, well, this is what we do. Really, absolutely nobody cares. What they do care about is what problem you're solving. 
if you can flip the messaging right around to the value proposition, this is the problem we solve and here's how we do it differently. That way you can connect emotionally with the people who actually have this problem. And then you have more of an open door to then begin to talk about your offering and what you do to help them. It reminds me of how things have evolved from trying to be in love with solutions or selling your solutions to really understanding what's the pain point that you're trying to resolve, the job to be done that has been out there for some time, which I really love. And it sounds like that's how you're always focusing your client's thoughts. Exactly. And to your question there before, what is good about today and all the different channels that we have is that there is an opportunity. And this came to us because of this horrible thing called COVID. Many of us are still learning, but many leaders have learned how to communicate with empathy, which really helps in telling the stories of what these problems are and commiserating with the end user or the customer and how they feel about that problem and what they can do to help them with that. Communicating with empathy is not always easy, right? Some leaders are just not wired for that. In the same vein, like being a humble leader doesn't always come naturally to every leader. Those two traits, I think, are superpowers for leaders and for communicators today, and I think are more impactful than the way things used to be done. Is there a situation where you really had to counsel a company or client to lead with that empathy when it wasn't actually there? Either the person didn't convey it or the company just wasn't known for this and they had to really make deep changes? In the work that I've been doing in the last few years with my consulting practice, a lot of the folks that I work with are founders who are engineers. That isn't second nature to them. That's not to say they're not empathetic people. They are. But communicating in that way is like a new muscle group that you need to develop and practice. So many companies sound like each other. They use all these multisyllabic words, everything in the kitchen sink. And it sounds like fill in name of company here. And so in my work with them, well, wait a minute, again, flip it around. Talk about the pain that people, the end user or the customer feels when they're doing it the old way and use that kind of language. It's more of a casual and informal language style, in fact. That work has always continued since I've been doing it. One company, the company that I started my business with, which was called PeopleSoft, had a CEO named Dave Duffield. He really got that. They put the customer first. And in fact, he didn't want any publicity. It's like, it's not about me, it's about everybody else. Before the word empathy was like a thing. The way you describe it as you might not have that natural tendency, but I think even if you're an engineer, you understand problems and the pain that comes from some problems and putting yourself in the mindset of, I'm going to explain to you how this problem can be resolved might naturally lead you to that empathetic positioning because you're living in that problem. Given this conversation, I can totally understand how you came to write a book called Make It, Don't Fake It, Leading with Authenticity for Real Business Success. I am sure you've seen a lot of the fake it and tried to help clients work through that. But tell us about the book and the premise that fake it till you make it is actually not good business advice. Why do you believe that's the case? Fake it till you make it is the worst business advice ever. Let's be honest. 
in the beginning, fake it till you make it. There was nothing wrong with it. And in some cases, there is nothing wrong with it. I want to be really clear on that because if you are doing cognitive behavioral therapy, right, to practice certain behaviors that you wish you could exude, like more confidence, and you practice that and you visualize what that might look like, or you wear a certain color to a meeting because it makes you feel more confident, or as Amy Cuddy did over a decade now ago in a TED talk about power posing, where you stretch your arms out, that was how fake it till you make it got started. And it's a okay, because you're just helping yourself. It's self-help. The problem with the phrase is that it mutated through social media and American pop culture. There was a TV show even called Fake It Till You Make It. It became like an excuse to lie and exaggerate the truth at the expense of others for personal good. It was like an excuse for bad leadership. It became too prevalent in our society. And so in tech in particular, this is really an issue. The prime example of that is Elizabeth Holmes, who's now in prison for what she did at Theranos. I mean, she faked it till she lost it all. Most of us, of course, aren't like Elizabeth Holmes. And so most of us can cross the line and exaggerate the truth about your customer moment to an investor that you're talking to, or you exaggerate the truth of what a product can do to a potential customer. And sometimes we fake it because we're under pressure and we have to make a number or we want to impress our date and you lie. But the problem is that the truth always comes out. The investor will do her due diligence. The customer will use the product and it won't work as prescribed, right? then you expose yourself, you set yourself back, you embarrass yourself and your team, you ruin your credibility. And I learned that myself in running my own company when I didn't stay true to myself and we were under the gun. I sold a half a million dollar bunch of services to a company. It was on a wing and a prayer and we couldn't deliver on most of the things that we promised. And then it was like dominoes. I was even more behind the eight ball than I was before. Plus, I had damaged our reputation, embarrassed my team. That was terrible. But that's an example of how fake it till you make it doesn't work. That is very real. And I appreciate your sharing that. What do you counsel people to do instead, especially if in the beginning of any initiative, company, venture, they just don't know everything or they don't have the confidence? What can they do instead to build those skills? At a foundational level, it's about looking at yourself in the mirror every day and saying, this is what I stand for. These are my values. This is what my company stands for. This is what we don't stand for. And committing every day to that and surrounding yourself with people who will call you on that when you don't stay true to that. Having mentors who will call BS on you when you step out of bounds I would say also everybody who's listening to this has faked it at one point or another to some degree or another. Authenticity is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. So you have to decide for yourself within the boundaries of reality and the truth, how far are you going to go on or outside of that? But as an individual, it's really being honest with yourself and having this great degree of self-awareness, whether you're an intern or a CEO or a vice president at a large financial institution, making that promise to yourself that you're going to stay authentic, even if it means that you might not get that deal. Sometimes I feel like I, I only look down the hood, but I didn't look down the road at like where I really wanted to end up. 
does it really matter what it's the cost of blowing my reputation, which I work so hard to build? Is it really worth it? Is that a chance you really want to take? And then you have to live with that anxiety every day. I think that's where company culture really comes into play and being a humble leader and doing the work every day to stay true to that path. Those shortcuts, they just don't work. So you're now teaching a leadership class and it sounded like it really reflected the comments and thoughts in the book, as well as other things. What has resonated most with your students about leadership that at their young age, they didn't realize? I'm curious how these topics played out for them. It was such a wonderful experience. And I had, it's my first time teaching. It was an undergraduate course at Emerson College in Boston. I think what was most revealing to them was that they thought about leadership in only in a business sense. They didn't think about leadership in life. And that actually all the things that I was talking to them about and the guest speakers we had and the assignments I gave them were, yes, certainly applicable in a business sense. But there are skills that you can use in everyday life. Avoid imposter syndrome, how to navigate a difficult conversation, how to manage through a crisis situation and stay calm. All those things, you can use them personally too. And I think that was the biggest aha moment for them. I think the second thing that they realized was that not all CEOs are bad people. There are all these misconceptions about what leadership really is and that anybody can be a leader. Also, that a leader isn't just a CEO. A leader can be an account supervisor or a manager on the floor. Everybody is a leader. A leader can be the receptionist. I think I instilled in them these things that they can take with them. I really love that. We talk a lot, obviously, about leadership here and really help try to expand the view of what a leader should look like, act like, be from. So it's great that you are teaching younger people this. We also talk a lot about ambition on this podcast and particularly what that means for women. So I'd love to start with this question. Do you consider yourself ambitious and what are you ambitious for or to get done? A hundred percent. That has changed over time. When I started my company, my goal was to be successful and not fail. My goal was to just have four or five employees and do a good job for the couple of clients that we had and go home and make dinner and work out every day. <laughs> the ambitions change over time. And when I became a mom, my ambitions changed to being, wow, like, okay, I'm just going to do the best I can. And on some days may not be enough and somebody's going to get shortchanged. When I sold my company, that was like being on another planet. And so my ambition was to sell the company to another company that I could really respect and where the culture is really aligned. The ambition was to make that transition successful. Now my ambition is really focused on two things, coaching other leaders helping them get over the challenges that they're facing on a day-to-day -day or weekly basis, and then continuing to teach young people and how to enter the workforce and do what they want to do. I've seen some of your comments around trying to get through obstacles, particularly for women in the workplace, and one of them is around gender bias. How would you counsel people to address this if they feel like 
they're not being promoted or paid or stretched and their male colleagues are. What do you tell them to do in these situations? First of all, I always talk about watching myself in my own movie, which is I'm the director of my own movie and I'm playing the leading role in it. And what am I saying? What am I doing? Just to double check that, like, I really am fully qualified for this position. And am I really lacking anything? How is that movie playing out? It's like looking at yourself in the mirror, but I use that analogy. And once I've done that, and I'm really sure that there's some gender bias going on here, I would suggest using the channels available to you to raise this issue your own mentor, whether it's your manager, your manager's manager, and certainly HR. Use the channels that are available to you. In other circumstances, I would say, get to know the people that are in the ecosystem of the person or persons who are putting up a wall around you, right? Who are making it difficult for you. Get to know the people who know those people. Is there a board member? Is there a friend of theirs? Is there a manager? Anyone that you can influence to sort of get more of a read on why this is happening to see if there's an opening that you can find to work that. Gender bias has been around for thousands of years. There's plenty of companies that would be damn happy to have you. So just pick up your ball and take it somewhere else where you'll be appreciated. Because banging your head against a wall after a period of time can really do some damage to your psyche. Give yourself a time frame, a deadline, work it to the max. And then if it's not there, time to go. It sounds like what you're saying is don't ignore it and don't put your fate in anyone else's hands. You have one life to live and it's yours control your destiny, right? And bad things happen to good people all the time. You cannot stay there. You have to push every day. You have to fight. And when you get shot down, you have to get up the next day and try it again, because who's going to do it for you? Sabrina, as you were building your career, really at any stage, were there mentors that were really important to you to help you test certain ideas or frankly, just get through challenging situations? Yes. When I started my company, mentor wasn't really a word that we used then, but I did have, we call them advisors. I had different types of mentors at different times during my career. And as my company grew, I needed different people to help me with different issues. The people that you get advice from as a startup are likely different than the people you get advice from when you're a much larger company. But I always really, really relied on people who I could trust who I could be totally myself with, who I could ask a stupid question to and knew that I wouldn't be embarrassed and that these people would protect me because they'd been in my shoes before and that they really had an interest in helping me succeed. Sometimes I had one mentor, sometimes I had six, as I said, representing different parts of the business. I just think it's so vitally important because these are the people who will tell you when you're a little bit out over your skis, you need to get centered again, or when you're scared and they'll tell you like, look, you don't need to do anything right now. Just wait till tomorrow or wait till next week. What about any other folks in your life who are influential in your career, whether that was on your path or just inspired you in general to pursue different things? My parents really were a huge source of inspiration. They're both entrepreneurs, they're German immigrants, and talk about controlling your own destiny. I was infused with that. Other CEOs, certainly the CEO of PeopleSoft, his name is Dave Duffield, as I mentioned, really learned about the importance of company culture from him. 
and about what not to do from other companies, CEOs that I work with. Frankly, I learned from my kids. Being a mom made me a better CEO. If you keep your ears open and you're not biased, you can learn something from anybody. So tell us about your approach to to the ever-elusive balance of work and family life. And balance is probably not the right word. I think you have some interesting ways of thinking about at least handling both of those things or being in a flow and making sure that you take time for yourself. My view on balance has also changed over time. I actually don't believe in achieving balance. I don't think that it's a state of being that can be achieved because balance is this constant competition between work and personal. They're constantly in flux. So if they're constantly in flux and constantly changing, it's like virtually impossible to find a status of being balanced. I would go home at night. I'm like, I don't feel balanced. (laughs) So what I decided was I can't achieve that, but I can achieve moments of balance. I can achieve moments of balance during the day where I block out a half hour on my calendar and it's just a meeting with myself. And in that half hour, I called my mom, went to the bathroom and washed my hands with warm water and soap, which really relaxes me, meditated. I went outside and went around the block. It grounded me. It centered me. It made me not feel so frazzled. I would suggest find moments of balance in a day, but you have to be deliberate about it. They don't just happen to you. You have to find them and be disciplined about making them happen. I think that's so hard in this post-COVID world, especially if many of us are still working hybrid and on Zooms all day, you barely get up to do anything for yourself. But I love that too. And like you, I find these moments where it's not a weekend, it's not a vacation, but maybe it is lunch with someone. That feels like the vacation to me. That feels like that break in a busy week. Rina, it's so fascinating to speak with you about your career, all these tips. I'm wondering just anything you want to leave our listeners with when it comes to authenticity for themselves and their careers. I guess I would say like, think about the last time you faked it. Did you exaggerate the truth? Did you leave out certain facts? Did you minimize the situation? Whatever it was, why did you do that? Were you under pressure? Were you trying to impress somebody? Why did you do that? And then thirdly, like, how did that make you feel? Were you proud of that? Did it work for you? Were you exposed? Were you embarrassed? And then the last thing is like, if you had a do-over, even if nothing happened, right? If you had a do-over, how could you go through that same experience and not fake it. What would that look like to be authentic and to be honest? How could you actually do that? I always end conversations like this by saying, the journey is the reward. That's what people say, right? So if it's your journey, make it a good one. And when you put your head down on the pillow at night, be proud of what you did and living a good life and living your best life. Thank you so much for that. I think that holds true for your professional and personal life. So thank you for leaving that with us. I'll be thinking about that for a while. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Sabrina. I agree with her that it's so important to have mentors, advisors, and people around you who will support you in the various phases of your career. These people will hold you accountable when you're not living your values and will push you to your full potential. You can find her book at sabrinahorn.com. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. 
Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.